And hello everyone, it's another episode of Birds of a Feather. It's myself, Mike Bird, with Amy Bird, but I'm also joined with Dr. We're joined with Dr. Sandra Glan from who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, who's written a great book called Nobody's Mother, which is about uh, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Sandra, it's great to be with you, and it's always cool to hang out with Amy Bird. <laughs> great to be here today. Thanks. Well, I mean, Sandra, what what made you um, want to write a book on Artemis of the okay. Ephesians? Because I just assumed yeah. she was <laughs> just some sort of fertility cult that's at the yeah. background of Acts and the pastoral epistles. I mean, I thought I thought we'd kind of finish with all the research. It's a fertility cult. Crazy yes, women running I, around having babies. People have said to me, wait, why, why are we doing this again? I was like, well, because we have exactly. a little update here. Um, so what brought me to it was my own story, uh, interestingly enough, because that little enigmatic phrase in First Timothy, a woman will be saved through childbearing, I totally bought into it. I don't know if you've seen Sound of Music, Maria von Trapp's character was my mother. I was the fourth of five kids. We had a blast. She was awesome. We had fun. And I wanted nothing more than to be a mother, uh, just like her. And I embraced that. And then my husband and I, you know, fast forward, I'm married and we hit the brick wall of infertility, which is totally unexpected. And it dragged on for 10 years for us of three, three years of no success, then seven early pregnancy losses and an ectopic and then three failed adoptions before we finally had the successful adoption of our daughter. And that whole process, difficult as it was as an ethical dilemma uh, in terms of in vitro, as a financial, as a marital, as a intimate, like all the issues. The hardest part for me was actually the spiritual because mm. I did not have any grid in my paradigm for anything other than motherhood, mm. especially for a married Christian. But, but even before I was married, uh, the idea that the, a woman's best in God's plan is to marry and have children. It's a wonderful plan. It's a great plan, but it's not God's will for everyone. And so when it became very apparent that despite all her best efforts, that was not going to be our story, I was paralyzed by saved through childbearing because I had been taught that that meant uh, basically Paul's, Paul's saying a woman can't teach, but her consolation is she gets to channel all her desire to mentor in the nuclear family. And so uh, I was, you know, kind of injured by that. And and it didn't, then I started noticing it didn't really fit some things. Why would Paul tell the Corinthians to think about staying single while he's telling the Ephesians through, you know, to Timothy and in first Timothy to, he wanted the young widows to marry. I started noticing things that just weren't fitting. Uh, Philip's virgin daughters that were prophesying, the long history in Christianity that led to nuns, but that started with virgin martyrs and a, and a huge emphasis in the early church on celibacy. And I was like, I wonder if the church has actually interpreted this this way. That's a long intro to say it was a personal journey that kept leading back to 1 Timothy 2. And at the time uh, I started with this, which was nearly a quarter of a century ago now, the, the reigning theory had started to be that Paul had Artemis on his mind. He was run out of Ephesus because of the greatest Artemis of the Ephesians disturbance and that she was a fertility goddess. She has these bulbous appendages all over her front. And we know that breasts equal nurturing, equal nursing, equal mothering, equal fertility. And 
But the problem with that, uh, those who were publishing that idea, which some of it was rooted in Jerome, calling them multi-breasted, the idea was that that didn't really fit the evidence and that uh, that's actually sort of late thinking to see them as breasts. And rather than say, but Artemis, maybe Artemis was something else that was influencing Paul, we just wrote off, it can't be her and moved on. Yeah. And so I was in Ephesus on a 25th anniversary trip with my husband, thinking this, that, that, that there was no validity to that. And I'm being told by the guide, you see the Amazon story is told up here in the stone. Uh, and I'm like, fourth century, right? And they're like, oh, no, 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 this was, this was first century. Wait, what? This was at the time of Paul? So that actually seeing that in the inscriptions is what started the whole thing was, okay, I need to trace who was Artemis at the time of Paul. And then ask the, once I was really established that without having the Bible in mind, just historically looking at that, then ask the question, are there words that show up in Paul that seem to overlap with the Artemis cult? And was she on his mind when he wrote to Timothy? Okay, so it's a matter of, you know, what was the significance of Artemis for the first century Pauline churches, including those? Yeah, if you were going to just say it in a sentence, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just trying to summarize. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, yes. trying to paraphrase yes. for, for, for my... Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, you, meant, you, you mentioned these um, that wonderful phrase, bulbid appendages, because <laughs> this is based that of a famous statue of Artemis of of Ephesus where she's got all yeah. these bulbid appendages and it's and it's like, it's like dozens of them rows and rows yeah. and I mean I've heard yes. them that they're breasts they're bulls testicles they're gift bags they're magical sacks of yes. magicalness figs yeah figs I mean there's the opposite all of honeycomb of, yeah all of that honey I mean there's <laughs> I did not know I mean I mean, first of all, if they if they are breasts, then she is going to need one heck of a bra. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> That's going to be a custom fit job. Okay. Okay, then. No one's ever mentioned that possibility. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, for, that's this that is this is you'll need the best bra makers in the in the world to come and help that lady. Um, so I mean, but that's one of the debates. And how you understand the bulbage appendages, which is our let's just call them the appendages, or the okay, sure. The things. I mean, how you understand them does shape how you think of Artemis. So do you, do you want to talk about yes. the appendages? Yeah, and, and so, how we read scripture. Hmm. Why do you say that? Because if we think she's a fertility goddess, it's going to shape the way we read these very verses that you're yeah. talking about being yeah. saved through childbearing. Correct, yeah. So I got my first hint from the book of Acts. A lot of people think I got my first hint in my answer uh, from the backgrounds, and that tends to make people pretty suspicious. But Acts has two stories back to back in chapter 17. First, we have the magic uh, workers that come to Christ and they burn, you know, first bonfire of the vanities, massive amounts of money invested in magic books that they're burning and Ephesus was magic central at a time where it's illegal elsewhere in the empire but they're getting a pass and so that's the first story in act 17 and then the second story is about how the silver workers in Ephesus uh, again both stories happening in Ephesus the silver workers are concerned that Paul's success with the gospel is leading to less people buying whatever souvenirs they're making of Artemis and so it's hurting them economic economically and we know what happens when it's the economy stupid like things things could get pretty rough 
I had not until the last year put those two stories together. I'd assume they were sort of separate religious uh, trends happening in Ephesus until I stumbled on some inscriptions that had in magic incantations to Artemis. And then it was sort of mind blown um, in the process. So all the more all the more interesting to me because in the last probably, well, in the last at least decade, uh, there has been more a little bit of a shift from looking for really European explanations for what's what's happening in Ephesus and acknowledging the Hittite influence that it's Anatolia. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though Turkey is, you know, we tend to think of it kind of the West, uh, it, it, their mentality would have been very different from a European. And so even the summer when I saw a, an iteration of the temple, it was different from how it looked 15 years ago. It looked much more Asian. And one of the, the more credible theories has been as to what, what is on her chest. Uh, there's also a tiny necklace around up, up around her neck that is the same shape. It's just much smaller that we have tended to not notice. And what is that? Well, up until maybe the last year i was i was going with the theory that uh they had there was a garbage dump in an ancient garbage dump where they found a bunch of amber sort of teardrop shape that had a hole in them that you could string them and so it was thought that either way uh the, the the reigning theory I think now is that it, they are Hittite magic bags and there is a connection between magic and Artemis. I didn't see it before because I wasn't connecting magic with Artemis uh, until I saw some of the inscriptions. And then when you put those two together, it makes perfect sense that that, that could be what that is. Yeah. Okay, so you can you have a whole chapter on... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Amy, go ahead. I was going to say that you have a whole chapter on inscriptions. And I found yeah. that pretty fascinating um the information that we're getting from inscriptions now even yes. and um you know lynn Kohick's done some work on that with women in the yeah. you know early christianity and we found out so much um you know what maybe you could describe you know what what these inscriptions are like and what forms they come in and why they're so important and what picture yeah. they can give us that um you know the published works that we have can't yeah. Yeah, great question. The The last time I really dove into this was a decade ago before I really did my update. And at that time, I had to get online. At least somebody had entered all the inscriptions and I could narrow it down to Ephesus, but I had to do all my own okay. translation work. So wow. to even find one about women and then translate it, it was just so laborious. Fast forward to now, my computer is sitting on a two volume set uh, that are just the women in the inscriptions throughout the Roman world. And I, there's a section on Ephesus. So in an hour and a half, I could just read everything that took me literally years to do. Wow. And so yeah. it's super fun. And one of the things that becomes really apparent when you can see the all in one reading is that the Artemis women were very much like the Junior League in, I'm in Texas, and I don't know if you get Junior League in Australia, but it's the upper class, sort of the coming out, the debutantes, the cotillion, the, the wealthy families. Um, and it was sort of passed down from grandmother to mother to daughter. And it came with honors of getting to bestow uh, public works. You know, they didn't have taxes in the way we do that would pay for a municipal center. Someone would build it and get their name on it. And so the inscriptions, when I started out, I was thinking the inscriptions would be similar 
to our Lincoln Memorial, which has uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address. And it's just beautiful words, beautiful prose. And it wasn't that at all. It was, first of all, it could be like Joey loves Susie, but it, a lot of it was <laughs> what we would see walking through a graveyard. So-and-so is a lovely spouse, you know, in the, in the case of somebody in Paul's day and she spun wool and she kept the hearth, uh, you'll see very commonly. But it also really kind of lays to rest the idea that Artemis was just for women. And I had never noticed again until I re-upped the research to do this book. It was originally my dissertation, but, you know, going now with more recent, all the technology that helps us now yeah. uh, to find Artemis, the name of a man in first uh, in Titus, which I had not noticed in my previous work that means follower of Artemis. So somebody's naming their son after Artemis. Yeah. And I think in the same way that you might find many men that love the Virgin Mary, it doesn't make it just for women because she's, you know, adored as a woman. Mm -hmm. You see something very similar with Artemis followers, it's men and women, the silver workers are men. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess all this comes down to um, if this Artemis cult and uh, actually you should say that um, Artemis is not a goddess of fertility. She's, she's, she's both a goddess of childbirth and celibacy. Now, yeah. can, can you explain the connection of those two, Sandra? Because that's the, yeah. would you think, like, how does Wait, celibacy... What? Yeah, how is she a midwife? But, like, yeah, although I imagine we probably have midwives in our culture that are that are not married and celibate. But yet, yeah, we don't tend to think of midwifery as being connected with celibacy. So it helps to know her backstory. The first thing I had to do was find out who was Artemis in, in antiquity and then narrow it down to what is just first century-ish inscriptions. So how much of that was retained in Ephesus centuries later? So Homer, in Homer's version, you have big daddy Zeus. He is married to Hera. He cheats on her with Leto. Leto conceives and has the twins, Artemis and Apollo. Artemis is born first, which seems to be really important in Ephesus and may account for some of the proto-firstness uh, language, even of Paul pointing out that that Adam was first could be an apologetic against Artemis being first. But anyway, she's the firstborn. And, and I like to say a goddess is, is like a little bonsai person. She's has full use of her faculty. She's not born like a cherub or an infant that has to grow intellectually. So she, she's just tiny, but she's observing all this. <laughs> and she's traumatized by the fact that her mother is writhing for nine days as she gives birth to Apollo childbirth is the number one cause of women you can imagine they didn't just die instantly a lot of the time it was a horrible thing to to watch there's no such thing as a c-section this is the thing that terrified uh, a first century woman at the time of paul war is going to be what kills the man but childbirth is going to be what kills the women so artemis because she has mercy having watched her mother she goes to her daddy, Zeus, and says, basically, will you make me immune to Aphrodite's arrows? I don't want anything to do with sex, childbirth, any of that. And he says, granted. But in Ephesus, because it's near the natal scene, she takes on a certain persona that's unique to Ephesus. And that is in that city, she is connected with midwifery. And so you would have women taking their gifts to her altar or to her temple and asking either deliver me safely or kill me quickly with your arrows. We think of Artemis with a bow and arrow and they were thought to be euthanizing uh, in some cases. So uh, don't leave me writhing for nine days and then expiring as I'm trying to give birth. Yeah. So Paul probably is coming along with the number one fear 
bringing it bringing Christ into the equation yeah. and and I'm guessing it was probably his number one obstacle actually for a woman coming to Christ was you want me to risk not going to the temple uh, because they didn't just believe they would personally be punished if if they hacked off the goddess the whole community could be punished mm -hmm. because of them you see that right with how they thought of the jewish population the jews were unpopular because they're thinking you're going to hack off our gods for your atheist with your atheism there's a lot of social pressure yeah well i mean amy you know that phrase in one timothy two, but women will be saved through childbirth how have you heard that explained i've heard i've heard some really weird complementarian <laughs> explanations of that verse i've heard yeah. some weird stuff i'll have to say like in the churches that i went to um that was not touched <laughs> it was just oh, like, interesting yeah um i mean it is such a confusing verse right and even in the complementarian world i i feel like it's um you know none of them want to say that you're actually saved through childbearing oh, you know, sure yeah 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 right baby goes down the birth canal means you'd be saved yeah right. yeah so i mean i've always you know of course i've read lots of different interpretations and some of them are, are pretty bad and but um i've always in church it seems like that part was de-emphasized and the part that was mm -hmm. emphasized was this creation order yep you know, Adam's first, Eve's second, and then subordination, you know, and that's why you, you can't teach, you know, so say through childbirth, they would just use that as kind of like, well, that's Paul's way of, you know, pretty much telling us we're going to be blessed in our homes. Yeah. And I've heard people take that, well, Adam's got first, he's got authority, yada, yada, yada. And then I've, yeah. I've heard it, so I've seen this in print where safe through childbearing means, and I'm not making this up if women accept the natural patriarchal order of the home, things will mm -hmm. go well for them in life. I've heard it wow. in a very allegorical way of accepting the sort of the, both the natural order and the, and the hierarchy of the Christian household, save through mm -hmm. childbearing means, you know, accepting the role that you're the mother and the nurturer, you're not the leader. If you accept that, mm -hmm. then you'll attain wholeness and happiness. So that's kind of, that's, that's how I've heard it. And look, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, that I've heard more of like, which I think it's more plausible in the complementarian church is, you know, they go from Eve, Paul's first, I mean, Adam's first and Eve was second um, to then Mary. And so it's through this line of childbearing to the son of God. So, oh yeah, the childbearing by Mary. So through by Mary. Yeah. So it's through yeah. you know women, the promise that yep. God gives in Genesis three yeah. sixteen. Yeah. Now, Sandra, I, I, I've, I've, I think you have a few thoughts on this, from what I, from what <laughs> yeah. I read. Opinion, opinions are us. Well, first of all, um, my goal was to figure out: is it true that the Bible teaches that the singular role for women? is marriage and children. Mm -hmm. And once I eliminated that as a logical option using, you know, the hermeneutic I was taught, uh, pretty much any hermeneutic didn't, didn't actually match with the data. And so that was the main thing I was looking for for myself was, you know, really eliminating that as, as a plausible way of reading that passage. Um, what was interesting to me was 
I was at a secular university when I started the historical research and I never expected it, but I came out even more convinced of Pauline authorship in, in a secular history hmm. program. And the reason for that was as I'm reading the inscriptions, you know, the writings in stone, I am seeing like the name Artemis Soteria, which is the female form of savior, I'm seeing a bunch of words that Paul seems to have picked up and used in the same way that he might use kryptonite if he's talking about Superman, but didn't want to say his name, that, would, yeah. that people would have known exactly what he's talking about. And the he begins his letter to Timothy, instead of grace and peace to you, which he normally does, he starts right in with Christ as savior, the Soter. And I just started noticing, even in the book of Ephesians, where he's talking about the fiery darts of the devil, he's talking about the arrows of the devil. I'm like, he is saying that in the city of the goddess who's got a bow and arrow. <laughs> right. Um, so I started feeling like Paul's casting some shade here that I hadn't caught until I learned some of the Artemis vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And then I was, I was almost amused, to be honest. But it also explained <laughs> why Paul's vocabulary is different uh, to some degree in first Timothy than it is in his other epistles, which is one of the reasons people give for saying it can't be Pauline. I'm like, well, yeah, but he's, he's writing a personal letter, not a letter to the church. He's writing to mm -hmm. somebody who knows how he thinks. So he doesn't have to explain some things. And he is totally casting shade on the last person that drove him out of town, which was the whole Artemis fiasco. And he begins first Timothy two verse three with, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So where did I come out on saved through childbearing? I think I, I respect those who say that saved through the childbearing is a reference to Jesus Christ. Um, I, I don't hold that view at one time I did. Uh, one main reason I don't is because men and women alike are saved through Jesus Christ, but typically we don't refer to the incarnation, although I do believe we're saved through the incarnation. Usually when we refer to salvation, it's through the death and resurrect burial and resurrection of Christ, not the birth of Christ. Um, but also more to the point, I think saved through childbearing is a borrowed saying I was looking for it in the inscriptions because I was thinking inscriptions would have that sort of thing. It turns out that's not the kind of things I would find inscriptions in inscriptions for the most part at all. But um, I, I think there are several textual reasons to still see it as a borrowed expression that he's putting a Christian spin on. Even the, the grammar in the expression changes from mm -hmm. she will be saved through childbearing if they, you know, if they continue in the faith, basically, but he, where he could have put quotes, you know, air quotes around the part that he borrowed, because mm -hmm. he does like to do that, right? He likes to borrow, you know, a yeah. phrase from the culture and then put his Christian spin on it. So you ask me a question, what, what do I think saved through childbearing mean? I don't think it means saved through the birth of Christ. Um, I don't think that it means uh, a woman's places in the home. Um, I think it's a very high calling. My mother exemplified it. I loved it. It's what I wanted for myself. It's definitely not what God has for everybody. Um, and I think that he is talking about actually saving and delivering. I think it's limited in time and scope uh, in the same way that there's appears to be a promise given in the book of James that when the elders anoint, you'll be healed. And we know people who've been anointed by elders and haven't been healed, but perhaps in James's context, they were. I think if you're writing to a guy who's in a culture where the goddess is midwifery and the number one thing she has looked to for salvation, 
that you're not going to see Christian women dying in childbirth. And you're probably maybe talking about only 20 women here. Yeah. So would you say that Paul's trying to replace Artemis with Jesus as the patron saint of birthing women? Bingo. Oh, gosh. I wish you had written this book. It would have been so much like more to the point. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's it's a gift. But Jesus is better. All the way through, he's saying Jesus Mm -hmm. is better. Better Jesus is a better savior. He's a better number one protoss. He is the the first and the last. He is described as manifest, Mm. which was one of her titles. He is Lord, which is one of her titles. He is God, which is one of her titles. Uh, he's the first throne was one of her titles. He, Paul was basically saying, leave her behind. Yeah. That was like the part, you know, part of your book that really blew my mind was all this language that I didn't know, you know, that was language of the Artemis cult really, you know? And so so those titles that he opens up the letter with that are very different from the rest of his writing. And then also, maybe you could talk a little bit about the language that associates that I didn't think of with magic. I know Andrew Bartlett's done some work on that, too. Um, And and that being part of the false teaching even um, going on in Ephesus in the church. She had dark powers. I suspect that that's why the section on spiritual warfare is found in the book of Ephesians. He's, mm-hmm. Paul has a whole chapter, chapter six, where he yeah. is addressing the dark arts and telling mm-hmm. them what their weapons are. And one of the things they're fending off is arrows, uh, fiery evil arrows of the devil, right? of the evil one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, again, if you're in Ephesus, who are you going to think of when you hear about arrows that are attacking you when you're a Christian? Probably mm-hmm. you're going to be thinking about the local goddess who is good at, at uh, archery. So what can be confusing is you have Artemis depicted as a young maiden of archery. And then you have mm-hmm. that bizarre yeah. looking creature with bees on her side and, you know, the bulbous appendages. And <laughs> and it's not either or in Ephesus. You see both statues of both. And, it, and I mm-hmm. like to liken it to, you know, as uh, as I wrote in a column for, for you, Dr. Bird, I like to liken it to Barbie. She could be both the president and an architect. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be either or. So she can have a bow and arrow in one manifestation. And in another, she's wearing magic sex. I think, I think what she is wearing are magic sex. But again, I'm not sure and my mind can be changed. Uh, we're I think we're at the embryo stage of getting all this information. There are about... Mm-hmm where there are at least half a million inscriptions that we have not incorporated wow. into our dictionaries. It's fascinating. So we are basing our Greek Koine English dictionaries. We're basing them on the papyri. And I think it, we're going to see an explosion of fascinating new word studies that are going to come out. Not only that we, we have them in context, but it's really hard to tinker with something written in stone. Yeah. hard for a scribe mm-hmm. to come along later. I know it didn't happen nearly as often as people claim, but still, uh, you're just not going to see people coming around and changing uh, a name from a, mask- a feminine form to a masculine form, for example. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Amy, do you have any final thoughts or any final questions for Sandra? I just how would you, after writing this book, after this research, and, and it's so well put together in the book, what is your hope for the reader after reading this? I think um, it's such a confusing little part of scripture there. <laughs> and yeah. there's such a, you know, a history you're bringing to it in a culture and a context 
Um, so what is your hope uh, in, in both maybe complementarian and egalitarian uh, spaces and readers of scripture um, to come away with after reading your book? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I hope that both will, the thing that is shared is a love for scripture. I think, mm. first of all, I hope that those who've had a, thought they had to sacrifice their view of Paul because they just couldn't reconcile what they saw as misogyny. I hope that yeah. they will see that their brother was for them and that he was really <laughs> trying to bring an equalizing force to something that was unequal. Um, I My prayer is that it will set people free people like me who are wrestling with, I think I have gifts and I really want to use them for the body of Christ, but I don't want to be a quote pushy broad if that's what God didn't make me to do <laughs> and get some clarity on. I didn't know if it was you go girl or pushy broad. I had to know. And so my prayer is that women who've been told that there's only one pattern for them and God, you know, we'll see that there are many patterns in God's book. Mm. Um, and so, and that it will set them free and, the, and that it will uh, bring brothers and sisters together in, in partnership, which I think is what you see him doing in Romans 16. Yeah. And, and Sandra, what's the official release date for the book? October the 10th. October the 10th. <laughs> well, if you can wait till October the 10th, and I hope everyone watching can, the book is Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a professional biblical scholar, but this definitely changed my view of, um, of Artemis, you know, reading certain nuances in the pastoral epistles and, and parts of Acts. So, uh, even, even this old bird is never too old to, um, <laughs> keep learning new, uh, For your credit being willing to be open to whatever this, where the scriptures lead, right? Well, you have to, I mean, if you never change your mind, it means you've never learned or self-improved. So we've always got to keep um yeah. learning things so thank you um sandra we wish you every blessing every success with the release of the book and i hope you get a lot of good feedback so and this continues to the conversation about the relevance of inscriptions for studying mm -hmm. the new testament uh but also how we understand the background of the pauline churches particularly those in ephesus so thank you for your hard work and service to the academy and to the church thank you it's been really a pleasure talking with you both. Thanks it's for reading. It's a pleasure talking with you as well okay. and reading your book. Okay. And everyone, thanks for watching. We'll see you for the next episode of Birds of a Feather.